Hey everyone, welcome to the Mass Construction Show. I'm your host, Joe Kelly, and this is a podcast about all things construction in Massachusetts and beyond. Today's guest will be Adam Kreitman of Lee Kennedy and David Mullins of Mortensen. They are the PMs that you know, you've heard before. They are back. This time I asked them to sit down and talk about buying out a project. Talk about CMP, scope sheets, allowance versus contingency. Uh, this is really kind of nuts and bolts construction stuff that I had really set out to cover when we first started because I always felt like everybody knows their little piece of the business, but they don't understand how the other pieces work. So if you're a super or you're an estimator, um, you might not know what a project manager does and vice versa. So good opportunity for everyone to learn here, especially the younger folks that haven't been around as long. And now I'm going to selfishly grab some time and say, please vote. If you're a regular listener and you enjoy the show, Construction Junkies has a, you know, a podcast of the year uh, awards thing going on so you can vote. Uh, I would love it if you would go and vote for the Mass Construction Show. I will leave a link in the bio. And from there, I will turn it over and have our discussion with Adam and Dave. Enjoy the show. Adam, Dave. Welcome back to the Mass Construction Show. Thanks, Joel. Adam, you're not glad to be back? I'm excited to be back. Excited to be back. All right, I'm glad glad you're excited. I was getting hurt there for a second. So um, we missed you on the first one. We were recording earlier, and COVID-19 delayed your your effort in getting here, but you're here. That's awesome. We appreciate it. Um, So... Wanted to talk a little bit about, um, you know, last time we were on, it was lessons learned. Um, and we talked a little bit about, like, you know, being, you know, using that as a way to become better project managers. So this is almost kind of, I don't want to say it's part two, but it's another um, way for look for us to look at um, project management on construction sites. So um, I think I'll hop right to it. Um, let's just set the groundwork and maybe let people know currently you are both in the process of buying out projects. So I said, hey, this would be a great time to look at um, the buyout process in Adam, how you handle it versus how Dave handles it. There's probably a little nuance in there. I think you guys have the same delivery method, but um, you know, Dave's project is a developer project, residential. Yours is an institutional client, academic. Um, so there's probably some, you know, some things in there that are nuanced about the, the owner and the type of project, but um, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, so let's kind of find out. But um, Adam, let's start with you, your closest. Um, what's the delivery method on your current project? Uh, so it's a GMP contract. Um, <clears throat> so the, uh, uh, we have two projects uh, kind of running side by side. They're all under one um, total GMP, um, guaranteed maximum price. So we uh, approach that as if uh, it's a, a one total sum, obviously, for that project. And the intent is that uh, that locks the GC into uh, you know the, the cost of the contract. Um, if we go over, we end up having a risk, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but outside of any direct changes to the job uh that's it's it's a good procedure for the owner to protect themselves where um if we bid it and and look at it correctly 
you know, everybody should come in under that GMB. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's where you hear the term CM at risk. Yeah. Right. So this is a structure of CM at risk with a guaranteed maximum price, GMP. Yeah. Right. Um, and then if everybody, I'll just say this before Dave even starts talking, because this is an omnidirectional mic, um, you might have to be a little louder than normal. I know you'll have no trouble yeah, with that, Adam. Um, so, Dave, how about you? Uh, same thing. Um, we're just on a project at the moment. That's that's a tower project. Um, so we're working towards a GMP and um, like that, you know, getting to that point where as a contractor, you've figured out all the scope, you have contractors on board that can deliver it and you have a, a cost basis for everything and that you can give a, um, a quotation a proposal for the whole thing and you know you, you have a um, you have a good um, tolerance that, that you can deliver that project for for the, the price that's being quoted okay so you used the phrase there right uh, and I want to come back to this but you know you use the phrase working towards the GMP number um, which is quite common um, but let's just stay in its basic form You've got the GMP number. You say, okay, we're going to do it for $100 million. It comes in at 85 There's lots of ways that that gets structured. Who gets that 15000 I, I think that... I mean, $15 million. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's, that's how we would sell it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think that that's dependent on the contract, um, mm -hmm. how the buy savings is broken out, where, where it's allotted to either be sent to contingency or if it's a buy savings to the owner and there's type some type of incentive built into that um so i i would say that that the bigger question is that you know uh 85 million or, or whatever that value was like what's actually part of that do we already have related costs a part of that are allowances already built into that 85 million dollar cost if we're talking about just pure 15 million buy savings you know that's that's all contract dependent yeah so um Let's talk about maybe how that could be. So let's keep it in a simplest form and understanding committed costs versus related and allowances. Yeah, and assuming there's no yeah. change orders and all this kind of jazz, right? Um, you did an awesome job. You didn't need to use any of your allowances and contingencies, and you came in 15 million under. There's lots of ways that that 15 million get, can get handled. Um, what are the options if you want? I mean, ideally maybe say how your project is if it's something that's not really public information then there's you know you hear the term shared savings you hear some people say like they i know some companies that just on principle they say listen anything that gets saved we give 100 percent back to the owner that's how we do it some owners want shared savings or you know because they want to incentivize the contractor to to save money but what are the what's what's the options and maybe what would you say are some benefits or because I, I could myself think of both benefits and uh negatives to those setups so i i think like let's just call it like a hypothetical job here yeah just so i understand exactly where you're coming from so we have a hundred million dollar job the committed costs that we've received are the committed quotes we're not even we haven't even committed to the cost yet, right? Yep. This is this is where we're still in the buy portion of the job. So right now we we obviously develop the scope sheet, review with the subs, um, multiple subs per trade, usually to get the best number. And then once we have that allotment of committed costs, 
uh, a lot of times what we'll do is, in generality, I'm hoping that the $85 million we're talking about is directly committed costs that we think are going to be trade values. Out of that, we look at you know potential exclusions that are out of the scopes or in an apples-to-apples comparison. We try to find things that they don't typically handle. You know, We'll just say like a related cost for site safety, um, carpentry work, stuff like that. And then uh, working with the owner, we'll, we'll provide basic related costs to build that up, that value. So let's just say it's an $85 million project and we end up with an additional $5 million worth of either allowance as a related cost. You end up with that $10 million remaining. And in that scope, again, it's it, it varies clearly contract to contract. Again, the, the reality is that no two contracts are the same. So you may yeah, see, yeah. Uh, like you said, an agreed upon buy savings that they may say a certain amount from zero to X is an incentive for the contractor or it, the uh, that percentage will then can be returned to uh, a contingency fund of some sort to help mm. you know short any shortfalls. Um, and then additionally, more typically than not, owners are owners and they want their money back. Mm-hmm. Um, our job is to bid the job as best as possible. If we're $10 million off on a buy, they're usually missing something. Mm. Yeah, and that's, that's it. You know, ultimately, uh, uh, an owner is probably going to bid out to three GCs in the beginning or maybe more. Mm-hmm. And they'll get a certain amount of leveling from just that process. Mm-hmm. And uh, to be $10 million off on a on a hundred million dollar project, you're probably out and running, you know, instantly. And mm. um, your window, your target to just be competitive is pretty fine, I would say. Yeah, and obviously I didn't word this correctly because you both are thinking the same way, so I'm probably off. I'm saying come the end of the job. Yeah. We're looking at the back end. There. Yeah, so come the end of the job. And the, the reason I brought it up is because it gets structured in the front that determines how the money is treated is you guys hit it out of the park for whatever reason, yeah. things go your way, and you come in $15 million under that GMP or $5 million or $1 million or $500,000. Yeah, we're right? talking like $100 million job or whatever. But, right. Um, you know. Yeah. So talk about how that money – so I, I think you started to – Really, I mean, already, if we're right? talking – uh, at that point, buy savings has already been realized, mm-hmm. so that that whole process has already been determined, and where that allocation is going to go. So buy savings is most likely already out the window, or already been a part of some type of incentive plan. Mm-hmm. Um, the remaining value, again, if there's a shared savings clause in your contract, I mean, the the end all be all here is uh, if there's anything to take out of this, read your contract. <laughs> um, I'm going to say it like ten times because everyone's slightly different. You could mm-hmm. have a uh, in a wonderful world, the 70-30 shared savings, um, you know, and it all depends on where that money comes from in savings again. Mm-hmm. So you could have a certain allotment that's contingency savings um, where some of it's within the contract and some of those savings are allowance items and allowances usually go right back to the owner where um, if it's a shared savings project um, or, or clause, you know, you can really pull shared savings out of more than typically a related cost and contingency and the again the contingency you need to make sure that um, what's built into that shared savings portion you know is that do you have any add-on draws that are fee insurance permitting that should be yeah. applied to those additional draws a lot of times contingency might be below the line um, and this is one that I find a lot where people will do an apples to apples draw and they'll say okay sub X is getting a five thousand um, dollar change order uh, that we both agree is a contingency 
placement and they'll pay the sub $5,000, but you need to a lot. And we're going, I'm taking a 180 here, but you need to a lot on top of that more than often. There's probably a, a fee that was not included in contingency or maybe an insurance or permitting line that you need to, that 5,000 should be 5,125 or mm-hmm. whatever. So you need to save that. So if you end up with $30,000 in savings and contingency, realistically, the whatever is going back to the owner, you need to also exclude your permitting insurance on top of yeah, those fees. So you have to do, there's some... Okay. Yeah. So um, how about just terms? Because we talked about this earlier and I said that just in case I forget to put it in the uh, intro, you know, the first part is going to be some really one-on-one type information, you know, so number of students listen to this. I see folks from UMaine and Wentworth and a bunch of places that are listening. So this is these questions are probably more geared to them. And if you're in more an advanced person, you should probably fast forward a little bit to we get to more in the weeds or kind of how Dave and Adam approach things. But just three things, maybe related cost, contingency, and allowances. How would you define those? I think every company uses sort of different terms for these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but like an allowance is a number that's um, expected to occur, but it's carved out to like a separate pot of money that isn't totally committed, that it might be used or it might not be used. And if it isn't required, then it gets given back to the owner. But for budgeting purposes, it has to be included from the start so that you know, financially, the whole job has a certain pool of money that's allowance money. So you would say, let's say, um, where would soil remediation? Like, okay, you know you have some dirty dirt there and you're going to start digging. You don't know how much. You did some borings or something, but yeah. so you need to all, no one's going to give a hard number on that. No. So there's going to be, what would be the method to handle those dollars? So you might, um, you might, you know, talk with your trades and figure out by their industry knowledge how much is expected and come up with an allowance number of, let's say, 50000 for soil remediation. Mm-hmm. And they'd give you a unit price cost for, you know, each, uh, each whatever, 10-yard truck that we take off site that it's going to cost this amount. Too great so you start to um, use that allowance as you're going through the site. And, you know, you're tracking against it and you're understanding are we 50% done versus how much have we spent? Are we over, under? How is that looking? Yeah. So throughout the whole project and with every trade, you're doing something similar. Yeah. So like floor patching would fall under an allowance, right? Yeah. You know, you don't know how much out of level it's going to be, but you put that sum of money. Now, how does contingency differ from allowance? Do you want to talk about so I think first, like I, I like to consider an allowance kind of a known unforeseen. If if you kind of get it, you know that there's yeah. a condition. Yeah. You, you, We're gonna have to pass yeah, the floor. You we don't, just don't know, know what it's going to end up being. Like winter conditions again is another great example. Of, you know the winter's coming. Here's you know a known cost of what it could be, but we don't know how much shoveling there's going to be, how much labor is going to have to be applied to that. So there's there's an estimate put together. We'll call it an educated estimate on what we could figure for the last two or three previous winters. And, you know, conglomerate that number and, and then provide it. And there's then usually with an allowance, there's a back and forth with the owner because, yeah. of course, an allowance becomes owner's risk. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's something to determine or really fully understand so related costs or some people call it holds. Um, just to understand that, again, is uh, more of a contractor's risk um, for a known unforeseen in regards. So there are certain things that the owner will agree to. A contingency um, is... M- Complete yeah. unforeseen? What's that? Uh, for, for contingency? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that there's a typical percentage that we will hold per contract for that. And again, it's a negotiated sum. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to pretend to be the, the, the executive making those decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, but typically, you know, it is a percentage of said contract for the work that we've done in the past that makes sense. And a lot of times that contingency is more, um, now again, stress it's defined per contract because there might be a contractor's contingency, there might be a separate contingency for owner's contingency, mm-hmm. where there's design and whatnot that was missed. Um, and the more that's defined in the contract for the use of contingency, the better for both parties. I mean, the end all be all of, of shaking out each one of these things is to both protect the contractor and the owner. You know, the, the, we're in this together to try to limit overall everybody's risk. everybody's risks because yeah. we want to do projects again with the same clients and the mm-hmm. same people. So these aren't shots in the dark. They're, they're educated numbers uh, that are put together. And contingency, again, is another fund where it's an educated value um, for, you know, uh, either misses. And, and it will be defined in the contract, again, in the AIA uh, documentation. But a lot of times it will de- define really what that contingency can be used for. And atypically, again, it's probably misses in, in the buy, scope buyout issues, um, and I would say potentially sometimes uh, labor overruns are allowed, and that's a negotiated portion of the contract as well. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, in my opinion, it's typically misses within the contract documents. Um, and then you know, it can go in multiple directions from there depending on your relationship with the client. Yeah. And you might have like a total different swing about like a new building might might have tighter contingencies. Whereas if you were working in an existing building with some unforeseen, like before you start work, you don't really know what's behind the walls or you don't really know the piping layout or you Mm -hmm. don't really know um, certain nuances. You might have a bigger contingency in that risk case to manage that a bit more effectively. Because it's more unforeseen yeah. conditions, right? Yeah. Whereas, like a new site, you might focus a lot of your contingency towards the groundworks, because when you start getting out of the ground, the general contractor is supposed to own a lot more of the interaction after that mm-hmm. point. Um, but it's you you factor in both okay. on every job. I think the the beautiful part about having a repeat owner or a repeat GC working on similar types of projects is in that process, a lot of times you can forensically look back at previous projects and, and more better define, you know, whether that should be a contingency value, an allowance, or a related cost uh, for, like, especially existing buildings. Yeah. You know, if you have the same similar type of renovations over and over again, you can identify, uh, to the best of your knowledge, uh, certain risk categories across the board, and you can work, in, especially in pre-construction phase, um, the the separate risks and negotiate where well this should be an allowance because we really can't quantify this, where this other one more or less should be a related cost with the GC because it's uh, we know it's there we just can't really place it into uh, a subcontractor's trade. Mm-hmm. 
So now, if you were to get them to own it, they'd be so um, exaggerated on their on their cost that it really wouldn't be um, a good buy, you know. Yeah, because going back to the soil. To, if you yeah. force them to say, "Okay, you own remediation," all right, I'll own it, but I'll you're going to get that's going to and they're going to make it. They're going to make it to cover their risk plus some. Right. Yeah. 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 So what's the worst case scenario? Okay, this entire thing is yeah, going to sh- be you know DefCon Five remediated. Okay, that's what we're going to price it as. Ship by then, rail to Michigan. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and how about the term related cost? What do you mean when you say related cost? So a, a related cost or, or a hold is how other people refer to it is a um, pocket of money, again, negotiated uh, between the owner and, and the GC that we've identified as uh, a scope gap that either a trade won't take or um, we've identified to reduce the costs because, again, it's a risk that we know is there um, or a, a, a scope of work that is there that needs to be performed um, that we either allocate, we think the budget is too high and can't be captured by the subcontractor, um, or it's it, it's work that we control. I think a lot of times we'll put uh, labor in there or mm-hmm. carpentry, depending on what we own. Like I said, I, I think I referred to project safety as a typical related cost item, um, usually dipped in like, uh, you know, the, the just handrails, mm-hmm. um, covering of holes, so on and so forth. That's an easy related cost to identify. Um, yeah. Stuff, yeah. yeah. Could, Scaffolding stage. And could you use the term associated cost? I think you can call it anything you want. Yeah. As long as it's defined in the contract. Yeah. Way. To me, what yeah. you're describing is like, that's a cost associated with the cost doing yeah. this, yeah. right? Absolutely. Like get tolls, right? Like the, the, the tolls on a direct cost to... Oh, or... or yeah, they're an associated part of getting that task done. Yeah, that may or may not be known or uh, unknown. When we say tolls, are we talking about driving on the highway? Yeah. Okay. All right. Or, was, maybe it's, yeah, maybe yeah. it's a bad example, yeah, but was, like that <laughs> yeah. tolls don't have anything to do with building the building, but yeah. they're an associated cost. Yeah, they're, right? they're a cost. All right. Yeah. So, okay, the I get it. Plans and all that. Yeah. No, I I mean the the uh, nail on the head. It's an associated cost to do the work and it's usually by trade. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to go rattle through my head on like scope specific areas or, or contract type uh, related costs, but the easiest one in my mind is always safety um, for carpenters. You know, it's, it's yeah, a- carpenters, yeah. Always. So when you're saying safety, handrails, tow boards, that type of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think it just, just uh, yeah, taking care of most of the, the, the site stuff, whereas like a labor item for cleaning, general cleaning ends up in our GRs typically. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we added the GRs there. So general uh, requirements. Even you got me for GCs, general conditions, GRs is... Yeah, GCs. It's the same. Okay. The same thing, I would think. Yeah. What, G, what, GCs and GRs? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, the kind of GCs, what general conditions, in, in my opinion, are uh, yeah, direct staff work. Um, sometimes it's it's cost for the uh, trailer. Print over the trailer. Yeah, yeah. Your, your, um, I think we talked about it before the, the the startup portion of the job. You got an you got an office that you're going to create. You're going to have staff in there, um, and then your GRs and phones go across the other spectrum where it's uh, general requirements. In there, you have typically some labor um, that's more GC covered items. Um, you know, they'll put, 
sometimes the winter conditions portion of an allowance may be built into the GR section. It's just for us, it's how we break out these sections mm-hmm. to follow cost flow. So like I have to some extent some OCD on how I lay out my um, my flow for cost-wise when I read like a cost report. Mm-hmm. So certain things belong in certain sections, obviously. Yeah. So you'll have a breakout for obviously your... Um, and I think this is industry standard, but you, you have, you know, uh, co- construction type that's under concrete. Obviously, you can have everything related under concrete under there. In our GR section, you know, you're handling your porta potties, uh, your temp water, um, anything that helps the construction site in general, where GCs is more office and field conditions to run the office. Okay. All right. That should give some clarity. Okay. So you've got GCs, GRs. Related cost, contingency, allowances, and they are all uh, associated cost. I know I'm just re- is I'm using that phrase again, even though I said associated cost is like related cost, but they're all associated costs that are not direct costs, and you don't necessarily, other than GCs, don't know the hard answer to. Yeah, yeah. I right. mean, going across those the related cost allowances, yeah, contingency, right. yeah. That, right. that, those so, are all uh, we'll just call them risk items. Open ended to some degree yeah. that you're putting some estimated educated risk, educated yeah numbers too. And it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, owner dependent, maybe even CM dependent. Those pools of money. Yeah, I mean, mean different things. Yeah, there, there, there are some where the contract will just stipulate that all changes come out of contingency. Yeah. You know, whether it's a direct ad or not. I mean, mm-hmm. those are um, few and far between that I've seen. Um, mm-hmm. But outside of that, it's, um, you know, it, it, it's, as you said, owner dependent on how that contract's set up. And usually if you see a job like that, that contingency is pretty heavy. To, to be able to absorb those. Yeah. Right. So Dave, when you were talking about things, you had mentioned, um, you know, you're currently working towards a GMP. Why do you phrase it that way? Um, so to get to a GMP is uh, like a lot of work, you know, if, uh, if a company is going to give, this is the number that we're going to deliver the whole project for. Um, it's not going to be a penny above. Uh and for it to be a tight number, um, to get all your trades like for that is like a significant amount of work to like figure out all the scopes, all the interdependencies, to make sure that it's a complete buyout. Everything's covered. Um, so you got to dedicate an awful lot of resources to get to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so generally, with you know the need to move fast to like deliver the building and not to like spend so many months working on this GMP um, oftentimes owners will uh, have a certain amount of money that they can release up front that gets you going with like the first few trades to do some site work maybe get the first um, you know just a couple of trades working on site and they'll, they'll allocate a certain amount of money and that'll include like some GCs to you know have the first three or four staff uh, on-site working and the, you know, a, a dedicated estimating team or whatever 
uh, to finish up the GMP while there's some site works going on and it just uh, tightens that whole schedule up an awful lot. Okay, can I ask you a couple of questions about that? Sure. So, the, so you released the site work contractor and utility contractor if they were separate, you know. Um, you get a a set contract with them. They're not on a cost plus kind of thing. They are, you get those two contracts fully bought and signed and go to work. Yeah, generally you buy those out because that's, you know, that's known work for the, for the, you know, let's say the building design is fully complete. So Mm -hmm. you have plans, but it might not be fully permitted or whatever yet. Mm. And you get your foundation permit so you can get your first trade package saying this is the structure that's going in the ground these are the foundations that are needed we need to buy you out for all the civil work and mm-hmm. um, you know your your proposal is going to include all that scope yeah. so that's a hard contract yeah. and then but you as a general contractor is probably in some type of cost plus yeah well mechanism or you know you might set up your gc's for it's going to take 6 months or something like that and you kind of sign up to that period of time for the set amount. And at the end of that six months, you expect to be, you know, to the next phase mm. um, where your your GMP is ready and it's kind of signed off. But if you back up a little bit... Yeah, that's good. Um, I just wanted to, so perfect. You're going to, you know, your office is going to have to provide an estimate for the whole job. And it's going to have to be pretty much on target with what the owner... Um, expects the work to cost and what his financing is going to project for the job and you know if those two align and you know maybe there's a knowledge of um, the owner has worked with the contractor before so there's a good comfort level there um, or like the team that's okay so you you interview you say we think this is going to be 80 million they say okay we liked your team the best we like your experience we're signing you on let's get these trades up and going you guys start finalizing the gmp we're on a cost plus or a little mini contract or whatever and then at that point you're fine-tuning it to get to like 8.7 million or whatever the exact number is that you guys all sign on the line yeah I mean, the, the, the enabling portion of the work is, you know, a savvy owner is not going to release um, that portion without having a, a, a relatively firm understanding of what the overall cost is going to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they, they got to bring in utilities and everything to the site line, you know, that work is going to need to happen no matter what. Mm-hmm. So whether it's with us or with another GC, at least the enabling package portion of the work um, can still progress their, their timeline because... You know, with commercial, they, you know, they have um, investments to make back. You know, mm-hmm. either way, that, that, that timeline, even with higher ed, students have to get back, you know, into their dorms. Mm-hmm. So, it, like, the enabling portion usually has to happen to at least get the primary utilities to the job site. Um, and then after that, you know, usually you're, you have a good relationship and a good number. Um, our estimating department does an outstanding job of getting to that number. I'm sure yours does, too. And in that process, it, you usually move on from that point into the next phase, the, the, the prime contract. Yeah, it's a lot of work. Yeah. yeah. And you're refining everything. It's, it's progressive elaboration that once you get into it, you know, you yeah. find a few more things and you're tweaking and you're, you know, getting to that 
confidence level where you're ready to sign up, sign mm. the dotted line on you know the proposal that you're given. Yeah, negotiated work, you can yeah. get away with that. Now I don't know about DCAM. You know that's a different yeah, animal. We'll stay out of public work. Yep. <laughs> so, so t- tell me this just roughly so people can get a sense. Um, obviously, complexity, size, all these things play in, but from when you're signed up to be the contractor of choice to getting the GMP finalized, are we talking weeks? Are we talking months? Are we talking more than a year in some cases? Like, what, what's, what's your window? That's very project dependent. Again, mm. I mean, some projects are split up into a lot of different um, sub-projects. So you might do a core and shell. Um, which gets you to a certain point and you'd give a GMP for that and then you know you saw this in the data center world the whole time where you'd give a core and shell and then you might get a tenant fit out mm-hmm. which would be all the interior um, equipment on a separate permit mm-hmm. um, and it depends on a lot of things it depends on the owner and it depends on their financing stream mm-hmm. and it depends on their expectation for what they're looking at yeah. for their delivery sequencing. Yeah, I mean, I think your question is a Rubik's Cube of variables. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, you're, you're talking uh, um, industry dependent on what the labor market looks like. Um, you know, if you plan on signing up a project and then uh, making that contractor buy out the subs within, you know, two months time, you know, that the, a lot of those subcontractors in this market right now, you know, they're one, uh, the labor market is... At critical mass as it is right now, or mm-hmm. it, it's stressful um, to even be able to pull people from other projects, uh, and then you, you have to give them enough time for them to make those. Uh, I'd like to say it's like three D chess. It's more like checkers, but they um, they, they still 3D, need three D checkers. Yeah. <laughs> they still need to be able to to line up those crews, and those crews have to be the right fit for the job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not every guy is a commercial guy, and not every guy is a, a higher ed guy. Um, or our lab guy, you know, mm-hmm. labs, you know, that's a whole other animal, you know, and yeah. they, they have to understand the client they're working for. So, um, I, I, like I said, the, the number of variables on where that, uh, if you were part of pre-construction, you have, you, you have a long lead on, uh, understanding what the scope is going to be and what it's going to take and what type of perfect fit subcontractors are. And as a GC, you know, you end up working with a lot of the same subcontractors, so, you know, not to give away, like, any, like, it's not, like, inside trader knowledge or anything like that, mm-hmm. but in reality is we, we would want to look at, you know, how many jobs, you know, does that subcontractor have with us? Um, you know, are they across the board with multiple other GCs in, in the industry? How, how booked are they? Uh, mm-hmm. That will end up having an impact on both the quality of work, on how many people can be there, as well as... Um, you know, the, the time frame for them to get that scope done per, you know, the CPM schedule, you know, that they've yeah. committed to. Um, and our, our goal is not, again, it's, it's not, it's a perfect uh, triangle of GC, subcontractor, owner, mm-hmm. engineer, architect, all, that whole thing. Everybody's got to work in harmony. partnership with yeah. all these pieces. Um, yeah. And then you're even getting into, you go, go so much deeper when you're looking at a subcontractor, right? Which is, what is their capacity based off of yeah. their other work. You know, they've got $100 million Do they have the, the bonding right capacity now? for, 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 for that work? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, so how does it look um, getting into the individual contracts uh, per, sub, per, per sub? What does that process kind of, what does it look like? Or what does it look like to each of you 
So, I mean, that's uh, that's another open-ended question that um, a lot of it depends on the level of plan set you have um, and you're looking for, you know, a, a permit set of plans then you're hoping they won't change too much because anytime you're implementing or introducing changes, um, just the risk is, is, is high every time something changes um, to try and manage that all the time. So let's say that you have 100% set of um, construction documents that you can send out to your subs. Um, you'll send it out, you'll try and get their proposals, but if you send it to four different subs, you'll get four different proposals and you'll have to try and level all those to get some understanding that they're all carrying the same things. So uh, you'll have a go yourself trying to make up your own scope and make up a list of items of you got to make sure you have this, you have this, you have this, you have the interaction with this other trade, you have, you're installing this for another, but somebody else is furnishing it to you, all this kind of interrelated stuff. And you look at their proposals and you go through every line item and uh, kind of make sure that it's going to be a complete buy because the last thing you want is to think that something's going to cost a certain amount, find out that you missed something and uh, have to figure that out down the line. Um, and then you use each of those prices that come in and say like, oh, contractor X mentioned this. I didn't see that in anybody else's. You use that as a tool to kind of level and make sure you're getting apples to apples. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, this is, this is where you get, uh, where you have to be cagey. Cause like if, if you're value engineering something, if a contractor is proposing an idea, then that should kind of be their idea mm. it's proprietary their yeah. proposal yeah but if you're like yeah you can't, a set it's of unfair yeah. saying yeah. you know we want x amount of wall and we want this and we want that um you know they're all looking at the same thing but they're coming up with a different idea of what's required for that so i think that's fair to level that and make sure that everybody is because let's say like i don't know let's take a typical one where you ask a contractor to put down floor protection if you don't define exactly what you want, if it's like Ramboard, Masonite, Fire Protective. Craft, craft you know, paper, yeah. You, yeah. you get a, a range that's like, you know, so wide um, that it's not fair to anybody. So you got to, you know, hone in on that and make sure that everybody's covering the same square footage, that, you know, a lot of these trades are touching other people's work. So you got to define, you want to this point, you want the next couple of layers and the last trade ones the uh, you know the third part hmm. and so, try and define all those elements very clearly to go back to the floor protection because it's probably a good example you could then structure it in the manner of everybody owns ram board right and and level it that way or you could use language that you're responsible for any damage to the floor beneath the floor protection or so uh, maybe that's wouldn't fly but you know i mean you could there's more you can either say you own the protection of it and any of the damages or you could say use this particular product but either way you'd get to the same point where okay everybody owns that yeah right? and you know to be fair to a subcontractor it's um when you have multiple trades working in the same area um it's very hard to get them to own like damage to right. anything because mm-hmm it just ends up finger pointing very very quickly so 
from a GC's perspective, you're as well to try and buy out protection that's adequate for the particular equipment and that you know you have a good comfort level that if it's installed at the right time it's you know trades have to always be careful um i guess so probably a poor uh, example on my part i guess a better way to phrase it is either you could level it by specifying exactly what you want yeah or specifying the results desired yeah yeah performance. Right. and not to interject but i, yeah, I think that the the quality of the quote that's received is by the quality of the scope shoot given yeah. and that's what i've learned from like really our estimating department like it like what we end up is a very well-defined scope sheet that goes across all subs so that it is an apples to apples approach they're they're the one-offs where the sub has looked at it from a different lens and has a different approach on uh, maybe they have that insider trading knowledge of a, a product that passes, um, you know, BFDs, you know, fire protect or fire requirements for you know protection and, and other trades. The yeah, and they don't else, know yeah. that, and they propose it again. That's a proprietary approach uh, that gives them the one up comparably. Now, like it's there are a lot of other factors that go into that, but the 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 scope sheet that's defined and developed um, again is also only as good as the person creating it in there prior experience so again it, it's all about proper selection for the person creating that and then the um the the team approach where i, I love it when we we get to sit down and review the scope sheet as a, a project team prior to it going out um we're able to look at uh you know the the selected super project manager assistant project manager the entire team can go look at this and look at past um, lessons learned mm -hmm. um, on, on other jobs and I say, okay, hey, you know, I've worked with this client. I know they're really um, touchy about this type of testing. We need to make sure we're recovering ourselves here or, um, you know, really make sure, um, you know, you have a certain specific type of G90 stud, you know, clarified in there so the, the, there's no way of getting out of it because, you know, a lot of times subs will miss that. Um, it, it's it's uh, layers of the cake Mm -hmm. But the reality is as you go down domino effect, yeah. a good a good estimator or a good team that creates that scope sheet then provides clear, concise direction for several subcontractors to bid makes it easier for everybody across the board and helps everybody understand the ownership when they're in the field because short memories happen too where everybody forgets later on what that line meant. The mm -hmm. more clear that line is, the more it's understood and everybody's on the same page because, yeah. you know. So that scope sheet gets developed by project manager, estimator. In a perfect world. Yeah, in, in a yeah, perfect world, in, in a vacuum. Yep. Uh, you know, you're not on several other jobs or however that's going on in your life. Yep. Um, but and, and even field staff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, literally everybody that touches a job has a different perspective of how this should go together mm -hmm. for this specific trade, um, whether it be concrete or specialties. You know, installing lockers or fire extinguishers. Yeah, you know, just how they're delivered and yeah, you know, and exactly. all kinds of everything. Yeah, unloading yeah. of appliances. You know, they, you know, they, there are certain things that get caught, and uh, depending on your experience, you know, each person adds uh, a valuable um, addition to that review. Yeah. Yeah, yes. like a union environment, right? Like, uh, the super might pick up that. Okay, they own composite trades on unloading equipment. If whatever you know, where someone might not be thinking about that because yeah. they haven't suffered through that that pain, right? Exactly. Um, okay, 
that's interesting. And then, um, so scope sheet really helps with the product that comes back from the sub. Then you're leveling it out. Um, uh, just throwing it out there uh, as another. This thing. is yeah fantasy the, world, but yeah the the, yeah. the whole scope review process is one of my favorite things because like you you get to learn so much from everybody, um, yeah. whether it's the field guys on how they're looking at something and you're like, holy shit, I didn't even think about that. Mm -hmm. um, all the way to, you know, even an APM on how they're going to handle the lead process. You know, hey, we need to make sure this is a lead for a job. Make sure that's in the scope. You know, mm -hmm. you know, some people will potentially exclude that or, or how that's handled um you know it, it, each person adds something and if you're not learning from there you're in the wrong room because there's so many people oh, putting like, put, putting so much good information out there that it's helping you prepare because i don't know everything lord knows that and mm -hmm. and as i as i go through that process and i see how these these sheets are created even when the subcontractors enter the room yeah. and you learn from them on lead times and what's going on with how many pallets are needed for uh you know you know, one application of floor leveling. You know, you have to figure that whole thing out Yeah. as a team. Just all that, like every project is totally unique. That's that's the beauty of them. Um, and trying to figure out all those logistical details and yeah. just uh, your overall project plan and how you, you have to know your goals for how you're going to deliver it and then back that into how you need to buy it out. It's an, mm. it's an art as much as a science. It is, yeah, and no. it's, it's evolving. Okay, so tell me this, and I'll start with, uh, we'll start with Dave, just for simplicity. Um, what would you say in, um, I'm just going to say the buyout process, because I don't want you to, we were just talking about specific contracts, but just zoom way out and think about how this whole process um, goes. And what would you say is probably the most important component to that? whether it's a task, a certain thing to do, a certain way things get structured. What, what do you think in the buyout process is probably one of the most important things? So, I mean, if you look at the whole life cycle, you have to understand all the things that you're expecting that trade to do, um, which takes some industry knowledge of, you know, really talking to a superintendent saying, what do you require these guys to do? Because, um, you got to write in all those line items because if you just, yeah, I don't take one door frames hardware. Like if you just put a plan set out there and say you own all that, um, you get proposals back, but it probably won't be what you truly want to happen on site. Maybe phased deliveries, which are going to cost more, but it's required. Shaking out of materials. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know you got you got to share you got to understand first of all, and then you got to share all these expectations that your superintendent, your project manager are on the same page about what they're expecting. And then you're aligning those um, with the proposal and with the vendor and with everybody else that it's going to be a, you know. All right. Could you call it um, being explicit about your expectations? Is that probably a fair Ultimately, way? That yeah. probably the it's most like important thing? It's scope, expectations, um, that you're defining those to that there cannot be any misinterpretation of that. Yeah. Cause the more open-ended it is, the more room there is for, yeah. for error or misinterpretation, you know, to go back to shaking out of materials, do they, do they own moving it? 
do they go and putting it to one spot and it leaves there and then what if someone has to move it right there's just and that's it you know you might you know if you know that you have a tight site you might specify that everything is on movable dollies just to make it easier to move things around mm. um when it's in the field kind of lean. can can be can being too specific be problematic as well like you, you know that's the, the you, trouble is that if you go very specific all the way through if you miss something what happens then was that something that would be fairly expected to be part of the score or would it be something that you know was a kind of an outlier item that we would never have anticipated without you including it so my preference and my comfort level is try and be as specific as possible and you know you try and work with your subcontractors to use their knowledge from previous projects and as soon as they raise something that you know we had another project and this came up that you treat that with the respect that it needs and you start to you know understand if it's relevant for the project and work it in do you feel the same be as specific as possible yeah i i, I mean the i mean stole my thunder in regards to um, you know, one of the, and it's almost probably everybody feels the same way. Like you want to manage expectations for the subcontractor as, as explicitly as possible. Mm -hmm. But I guess, um, in regards to the buy, the other portion of that, that, that defines that understanding of being how specific is your comfort level with who you're working with. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's, uh, it's a relationship. You know, we're, we're, we're building a project together for one, two, three years together. Um, unfortunately, you're going to see this face every day, you mm -hmm. know. Um, so the... the I, I feel your pain, subcontractors. <laughs> so the, the, the issue is there that you when you go through these, you know, the buyout process, you're, you're not just interviewing on, you know, the understanding of scope, um, with their bonding capacity, you know, their EMR rate, you know, understanding all that. That's all, that's all very, 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 very important to understand. But it's, it's how you feel comfort level with the person about to do the work and work with you. Um, you know, sometimes you just get, you know, a vibe that this relationship isn't going to work. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, and I'm sure you are a very paperwork oriented person. Um, I, I go to the nth degree within my uh, procurement logs and submittal logs. I want to see everything because that's the type of uh, you know conditioning I've been done with uh, higher education. Mm -hmm. So you know you'll end up with a spec with seventy five submittal items that are called there. I expect that, and the comfort level that I want to have is a subcontractor that's going to work with me and understand that I expect, and the owner expects, and the architect expects all of those to be submitted on because they're important. Um, you know something as simple as a panhead screw can can really. You know, if you installed in the wrong location, can do havoc on an entire job if, if it wasn't submitted on. So, um, don't hire me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's I think in we'd that be a bad fit. It's very important in, in that process that everybody's filling each other out um, yeah. because the, the jobs do get stressful. It's construction. It's just what it is. That's why it may look like I've gained some weight, but it's just thick skin. You know? <laughs> and, and you you literally, you, you build up a tolerance to it, but you want someone else that can, um, if you disagree on scope um, and clarity of said scope, uh, they're willing to work with you and understand mm -hmm. and, like w what those expectations were. Um, now, at the same time, you know, that you're there to prevent the owner's risk as well. So... Um, you, you also want to make sure you're as clean in there so that, you know, someone can't say that they don't own that scope. 
um, you're there to, to define it as best as possible so that we don't have to use contingency as much. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's, contingency is, is protection against that. In, in, in a perfect world, you don't want to end up having to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so is that, you feel like that, is that your answer to what you feel like is the most important thing? Or is that still just a response to, is, or is it one and the same, I guess is what I'm asking. No, I, I think, um, you know, if, it, if my most important thing is to have an explicit scope line, um, I I would say yes. Okay. Yeah, it, it's shades of gray. That's interesting. So yeah. you both kind of almost end up in the same camp of the most critical thing is... And if you're the one that's, like if you're the project manager that's going to be on site... I would say that your most important thing is the line item scope because you have to get to the very end line yeah. and you have to you know, manage the money and manage the work in the field. And by having that upfront scope clearly defined, you get there a lot easier. And mm-hmm. additionally, buy-in on the CPM. You know, you know that's, that's very like the, the specifics of the scope and specifics of the schedule are both critical in, in making sure that who you're working with fully understands the expectations of not just the scope, but how that applies to getting the work done per schedule. And that, again, compounds on what your manpower looks like and what your capabilities are of getting said supplies. I mean, yeah. I think we're we're all under the, I don't know when this will air, but um, supply chain issues and, and you know yeah. people's ability to pull some strings and have some friends in high places, you know, that helps too now. Yeah, um, but no, for sure, you know that, that's a whole other conversation. Okay, maybe an episode on SARS. Uh, there's not SARS, COVID. Isn't SARS COVID? Are they one and the same? I can't keep up. Sorry, isn't it, isn't yeah, it the SARS. coronavirus? Yeah. Uh, coronavirus is, is <laughs> I, you know, from my my rabbit hole reading. I'm pretty sure it's SARS, but okay. Yeah, um, yeah. I think actually, there's going to be. I'm going to have something on that to come. But who knows when this airs? So we'll see. Um, but similar question, but uh, actually, no. Yeah. No, it's not similar. I lied. Um, I want to say a couple of things. For people that might understand only the idea of a project manager and a super on a project, um, coming from the world where the project manager will buy out everything when you're getting on larger jobs like you guys are on right now you're dealing with project managers that can be trade specific right yeah so somebody will own elevators and MEP and then other people own all the architectural steel and concrete or something like that so the this that piece in the mix as well for people that are might not be aware that's typical on when you're getting into the GMP world, you're dealing with a lot more players. So you could have a set of scopes that are really well defined because you have one PM working on it, and then you have another set of trades where they're maybe not as clearly defined because that project manager might have a different approach. But typically from the field, a lot of times you end up overseeing all of them. So you could be having one set of contract that's really tight and you've got everything managed well and another one that's really loose and you're fighting over it all the time. And that's where I think a good project manager and a good buy affects. Yeah, I, I, to be honest with you, I mean, not to pump their tires anymore, but I, the way we work is our, our estimating department pretty much supplies our project management team with that scope already broken out. We typically add to it 
through experience. But, um, you know, just because someone has um, less defined um, scope in totality, you know, different mm -hmm. ways to bake a cake and they all end up with a cake. So, um, you know, I, I've seen product managers that aren't as paperwork savvy, but just are, are incredible at completing a job where, you know, I know what my um, weaknesses are mm -hmm. and, you know, I need to have things written down. I need to be able to uh, refer back to those as much as possible. Mm -hmm. you know? So, um, you know, that, that's why I like things clearly defined. But when it comes out from uh, when you, I would like to say a uh, multi managed aspect for one project um, more often than not I mean you don't want those things to all be different um, if that one manager gets hit by a bus someone else is going to need to step in Bill, Bel Bill Belichick style mm -hmm. and fill that role and they all need to be read the same way you need to have continuity between all contracts and I think um, uh, I'm sure you see it all scope sheets are atypically rated, like out the same way and the body of the contract is the same across the board um, where you can refer back to any portion of that contract that you know is both um, reviewed by the sub and the GC um, like the the main portion of that prime con or subcontract that you have is typically the same language across the board and then there'll be a, probably a separate scope sheet but everybody else has the same schedule um, yeah okay. so uh, we'll, we'll go back to Dave. Um, Dave, what's something that you do different? And now you can even, don't even feel constrained to your current job. Maybe even it could be back when you were doing um, mission critical type stuff. Like what's something that you do that you do differently than Well, the thing that I've, I've learned is, um, and you know, I've kind of learned the hard way, um, is that you got to be, clear with the things you know but you gotta ask probing questions um, to try and uncover the things you actually don't know at all mm. so like I don't know, I'm working on an elevator and I've never built an elevator to you know a high rise um, for Standard, a high rise before yeah. so like when you get a subcontractor into a meeting you know how do you ask probing questions to you know, grab a few tricks off them that, you know, they can set you in the right, you know, set you up properly. So what's the most difficult thing that you guys uh, find in your projects? Um, what's a common install uh, problem that you guys often see? And, you know, you're hoping to tease out some answers out of them that you can use and you can build on and say, oh, ex ex tell me more about that. Um, oh, you had problem with the embeds on another job how did we how did we get around that so you don't know all the ins and outs of that trade but you got to work you got to work them and you got to um try and figure it out you mm. know so that you can have a good buy from the start and you know i've done this on previous jobs where let's say mission critical where you're you know you're doing a package that's a little bit outside of your you know technical knowledge but let's say a security package that has some unique uh, stuff to it. So you're um, working your security contractor. So tell me all the things that you're going to require off the electrician. And he's going to say pathway and he's going to say, this needs to be prepped on the door and you're writing them down and then you're you know doing your research and trying to figure out 
all those pieces and that and then make sure you're including that in the electrical contract yeah Yeah. and like your your door guy is going to install electric hardware and your security guy is going to own it from the hinge back or whatever Hmm. you're like just figuring out all those little complexities so um i think you gotta make yourself vulnerable uh with your subs and you know tell them up front i honestly have never done this before so i need you to help me and I need to, you know, um, well, you're the, grab your you're the experienced from. professional, you know, yeah. you know a lot more than I do. Yeah. yeah. And uh, my job is just to manage this well. So I got to figure out what's required and then, mm. you know, build it into your specific plan just for your trade, which is going to, you know, work into the program. Mm. Um, and yeah. uh, that would be, you know, I've, I've gone the other way before where I've, uh, you know, when I was starting off, where I thought I was dangerous. Yeah, so can't I, show uh, weakness, and uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but it doesn't end well, or it didn't for me. Anyway. Yeah. You know, you get you get landed because people are waiting for you to fall. But if you're looking from help, for help from the start, then people are generally pretty good to, you know, uh, help you out. Mm, that's good advice, Dave. Um, how about you, Adam? What do you do different? I don't honestly think I'd do anything different than anybody else. Um, I'm, a, I'm like a Frankenstein's monster of everybody I've worked with. So I've learned something from different people mm-hmm. across the board. So as much as I'd like to say that I've, um, you know, invented some new technique is, is a lie. Yeah. I've just stolen stuff from other people. Uh, <laughs> is there so, oh, let me rephrase. Is there something maybe you rely more heavily on than most people? You're like, okay, well, I, you know. I mean, I, I honestly, I, I like I, I'm anal about this, and everybody else is, it does that, but they might not be anal about it. Yeah. Or, um, I, I think I, I, I tend to like to soapbox more often than not. But one of the things I like to do during buyout is stay quiet. Um, I want to, I want to understand from the estimator's perspective, you know, how this is going. Um, it kind of is the same thing you're talking about from, but without asking the questions, I, 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 I want to give the subcontractor time to talk through what they're going through, what they're mm-hmm. seeing, um, and to kind of digest it all. Um, you're learning from that perspective, but, um, you know, when it, when it comes to the buy, uh, buy a process and, and it's, it's t- total view. Um, I try to look at it from, you know, a, a cost sense, on how the whole flow of work is going to happen. Um, so, you know, where, where it's not as much constructability on the other side, it's how all of these different things are gonna interact and what are our costs and risks throughout that whole process. Um, right. Again, I, I can't think of anything that I do explicitly different from someone else, mm-hmm. um, but because I, I like, uh, I think I've mentioned it before, you know, if you're the smartest guy in that room, you're, the, you're, you're in, in the wrong, wrong room. room. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and I, a lot of people that I work with and a lot of the subcontractors you talk to are a lot smarter than you are. At least that's the, the perspective I take. Okay. Yeah. So, All right. I really liked this. Um, I, I want to do more. Um, I don't want it to be too long, though. So um, I'm going to end it here. Uh, people that are listening, I'd like your feedback. If you like this and you want more conversation... I mean, I, some of the places where I almost wanted to go on the, in, dig deeper on the individual contract tracks and what, you know, um, what either maybe pre-bid meeting or uh, pre-mobilization meetings start to look like. Um, so I'd like to dig in more on the specific contracts and how you guys go about that. 
and uh, a little bit more on the strategy front and maybe more, okay, day one, now we're going to start mobilizing and take kind of the next step there. So dig in a little more on some stuff and then kind of where we go from there. So if people are interested in that, um, please give me some feedback. And I think that would be a place that I'd like to go. Um, I don't know what you guys think about that, but um, if uh, we'll see what the people have to say. Uh, and thanks for coming by and uh, appreciate you guys taking out this time. I know you're all busy. Thank thanks. you very much. Hey, Mascons. Thanks for listening. Thanks for doing what you do. Thanks for sharing, liking, whatever you can to help spread the word about our show. Last thing, I'm going to throw that one more time, a plug in there, because I would love to get over the hump and get us a year on the homepage of Construction Junkies. So if you can hop to the show notes, hit the link and vote for our show, I would be forever grateful. Take care. Yeah, yeah.